Oh, we've seen Mr. Con artist himself, Jacob, came into his father, dressing up like Esau, his older brother, putting smelly clothes on so he smelled like his older brother. In fact, his dad said, you smell like a field that God blessed. Putting skin on his uh, furs of animals and sheep around his neck and his arms so his father, though he was blinded, would smell him and would feel him and say, oh, okay, you're Esau. And through deceit, he stole the blessing that should have gone to the firstborn Esau. Now in chapter 28, he's on his own. He has to leave home. He flees from his mom, from his dad, and especially from his brother Esau, who vowed to kill him. He said, boy, after my dad kicks the bucket, and after I mourn for a few days, I'm going to chase my brother down. I'm going to kill him. And so in chapter 28, we see before Jacob flees from home that Isaac, called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful, multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and you, your descendants with you that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padanaram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. And we actually read last time from verse 1 on to verse 9, and we left off with Jacob making that long journey, a 500-mile trip to be exact, and if you look on the map, you can follow it from the land of Canaan all the way back to Assyria and returning, which is about a 500-mile trip altogether. Now, it's going to be 20 years that this trip is going to take. His mom says, get out of here. Your brother wants to kill you. Go away for a few days. Come back. The few days turns into 20 years. His mother dies in the meantime, and so she never gets to see him again. Now it says that Jacob went out from Beersheba toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. He took one of the stones of that place, put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. Every man upon this earth has a hunger to experience God. And I don't know of any person that doesn't ask the question, where is God, eventually in his life. Now, when he's young, he might take it for granted. Mom and dad says, you got to believe in God. Okay, I believe in God. But there comes a point where that child is unsure and starts asking mom and daddy some pretty tough questions. Hey, where's God? Well, God is everywhere. How come I can't see him? Oh, well, um, God is invisible, but he is here. How do you know for sure? What does he do during the day? What does he do with all of his time? What kind of sports does he like to play? What food does he like to eat? Those are some interesting questions. Every kid asks those kinds of questions. Where is God? How can I experience God? 
Adults ask that question, don't they? Especially when we suffer. Where is God when it hurts? In the book of Job, here is a man who is suffering and says, when I go forward and I look for God, I can't find him. When I go backward, he's not there. Where is he? I wish that I could find him and present my case before him. Even people who come to church ask that question. I'm worshiping, I'm trying to get in touch with God, but where is he? You remember the movie? Actually, there have been several movies off this same book. It keeps recurring every few years, The Invisible Man. The concept of a man who could find some formula to enable himself to become absolutely invisible to people. Now, at first, it's a novel idea. We think, boy, I wish I could be invisible. Or I wish I had an invisible friend who could come along and help me out. Well, it's fun for a while, but after a while, it's, it's a drag. Especially if your friend is invisible and you're not, you never know when he's there. You never know if you're really alone or not. And you wish that you could relate and see that person. Jacob, though he was raised with the covenant of God and the promises that God gave to Abraham and to his father Isaac, after living a life of deceit, all alone, away from home, out in that barren wilderness toward Bethel, is probably asking himself questions, where is God? I've heard of the covenant promise, but I feel so far from God. As he's out now on his own, on the way back to his uh, in-laws, back in the land of Padanaram. Every man and woman at some point not only struggles with God, but even after that person encounters Jesus Christ, we're still not satisfied. We long to have a complete, full experience. We want to see him. And you and I will not be satisfied until you can see God face to face. Moses said, oh God, just show me your glory. I'll be satisfied. Well, Mo, you can't see my glory, man. No man can see me and live. You'll burn up. I'll pass by and you can get a glimpse of what happens afterwards, but you can't look at me directly. No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son of the Father, He has declared Him. Now one day you and I will see God face to face. Until that time, there will be a dissatisfaction that you experience. In fact, it's a healthy dissatisfaction. Every time I worship the Lord, as glorious as it is, it's not enough. All it does is whet my appetite for more. For that full encounter of seeing Him face to face, eye to eye, and being changed into the same glory. David said, I will be satisfied when I awaken your likeness. Until then, we're not satisfied. There's nothing like being alone to awaken those kinds of thoughts. You know, you can act one way in a crowd. But oftentimes, when you isolate that person from the crowd, and they're all alone at night, everybody's gone to bed, those thoughts start pounding through their brain. Who am I really? Who am I trying to fool? Where is God? What is my life all about? Those are searching questions. Fortunately, God in His grace reaches out to Jacob during this time. Um, it says in verse 10 that he went out from Beersheba. And if it's on the map, ah, it is. Great. Follow up, go up to Jerusalem, and then go up to, toward Shechem on the map. It's about a 40-mile journey in one day on foot. No bus, 
No Arab taxi drivers in Israel at that time. He just hot-footed it 40 miles in one day to get away from his brother. Man, his brother was angry, and he knew that his brother would kill him. So now he's up in the area called Bethel, the area of Shechem. We would call it the West Bank area. I've been in that area. It's a beautiful place, actually, but it's very barren, very rocky. He lies down, puts his head on a rock, a guilty conscience, a rock pillow, make for interesting dreams. And what's beautiful is that the dream is a very natural thing for him to do, but supernaturally God speaks to him in the dream. He stayed there all night because the sun had set. He took one of the stones of that place, put it on his head, lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Behold, the Lord stood above it, and he said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, and the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Now, this is what I think was going on in his mind at this time. He was a trickster. He was a conniver. He was a con artist. God's about to change him, by the way. It'll take God 20 years to do it. He's used to getting his way by deceit. And God's going to send him to school. But I think that being all alone, he must have thought, was it worth it? Stealing the blessing. Now my dad doesn't like me. My mom sent me away and my brother wants to kill me. And he probably plopped his head on that rock, looked up into the stars and thought, where's God? I'm all alone. I feel so homesick. Look at this setting. It's bleak, man. I'm out here all alone. And I have to go to a whole no another country hundreds of miles away. Was it really worth it? I probably should have waited on God. Now, there's something about camping out and looking up at the stars that reminds you of two things. Number one, how vast and powerful God is. And number two, the distance that a man has with God. You know, I was camping not too long ago. Rode my motorcycle up towards Santa Fe and went up toward the mountains. And it was so bright, the stars were shining. And I got to think about this universe. I like to camp and think about the stars, realizing I live in a galaxy with 100 billion stars, that there's 100 billion other galaxies out there that I cannot see with the naked eye. And it reminds me of how big and vast God is, especially when the Bible says He measures the universe by the span of His hand from thumb to forefinger. The Milky Way galaxy, 100,000 light years in diameter. And so I try to picture myself sitting on a beam of light going 186,000 miles per second, that it would take me 100,000 years to go from one end of it to the other, that there's 100 billion other galaxies besides the one that took me 100,000 miles going 186,000 miles per second to traverse. And I think, wow, God's pretty big. <laughs> that kind of thinking does not make God intimate but distant. I realize how big he is, and I think like David. He's, when he said, when I look at the heavens, and I see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you would visit him? Why do you care about us? 
You're so big, you're so far away, it would seem. No doubt. The guilty conscience that plagued this man and looking up at the stars, his head on a rock, he's thinking, what a fix I've gotten myself into. God is so far away. And God's about to, in His grace, reveal Himself to this conniver, this surplanter, this con artist. And in grace, God reveals Himself to Jacob. He says, hey, let me tell you something. I am the God of your grandfather Abraham, your dad Isaac, and the land that you're on, I've given it to you. I'm promising you some great things. I'll be with you the rest of your life. Blew his mind. Not what he expected. But we read that he saw a ladder in his dream that was set up on the earth. A better translation would be a stairway. Its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. The Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. And I already read this. The land of which you lie, I give to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, the north and the south, and in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you. And I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken unto you. Boy, that blew his mind. That here I am, I'm a rat. I ripped off my brother's blessing. I lied to my dad. I was a deceiver. My mom was a deceiver. And I had to run away from home. And here God blesses me. Now, I found something about God's grace that oftentimes God will bless me when I deserve it the least. And it totally flips me out. It's kind of like I blow a circuit. I don't know what to do with it. Because as a logical thinker, moreover, as a capitalist, I'm not used to thinking that way. I'm used to thinking when I do good, good will happen to me. When I do bad, Bad will happen to me. Now, there is a law of sowing and reaping. That does happen. But the law of grace often supersedes that. And sometimes when I think, God, I've been really good this week. You can bless me now. I'm approaching him on the basis of my works. I deserve it, God. Lay it on me. But God's grace means he blesses you when you don't deserve it, which is most of the time. But sometimes when I haven't been reading, haven't been praying, haven't been devoted, haven't been wanting to fellowship, I've been short with people, I've been angry, at, yelled at my wife, for God to turn around and bless me drives me to my knees. In fact, it is often the goodness of God that brings me back to a place of dedication. For the scripture says, it's the goodness or the kindness of God that leads a person to repentance. And here's Jacob, man, just thinking, man, I ran away, I blew it, and God reveals himself in such a powerful, personal way. I love you, Jacob. I'm always going to be with you, and this land is yours, man. It's your piece of real estate. You're going to go, but I'm going to bring you back, and I'll be with you all the days of your life. Awesome. Jacob awoke from his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. This ladder that went up to heaven interesting kind of a dream. 
It showed Jacob, first of all, that God wanted to communicate with man. He wanted to communicate with man, and so God has seen at the top of this ladder angels of God going up and down, up and down. It was the first time that God really revealed himself personally to Jacob. He heard about the covenant promises from his grandfather and from his dad, but he had never had God speak this covenant promise in such a powerful way as he did that night. This is a promise to you. God wants to communicate with man. In the New Testament, there is some light that is shed on this passage by a character by the name of who? Anybody remember the story? John chapter 1. His name is Nathaniel. Philip found Nathaniel and he said, Nathaniel, you've got to see Jesus. He told me everything about me. He's the king of the Jews. He's the son of God. He's Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Kind of a cocky character, like Jacob. Philip said, come and see. So as Philip and Nathaniel are trekking down the road, Jesus sees them coming. And before Nathaniel can ever come to him, Jesus said, Hey, look, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, unlike Jacob. Nathaniel responded by saying, How do you know me? Jesus said, When you were under the fig tree before Philip called you, when you thought you were all alone, I saw you. That blew his mind. He said, You really are the king of Israel. You're the son of God. It blew his mind. Jesus said, Just because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? Stick around, man. You'll see a lot greater things than that. For he said, You will see the heaven open." And the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. What he did at that point was to explain the vision in a clearer way. God was trying to communicate to man. He sent angels up and down that ladder talking to Jacob, revealing his love, his promise to Jacob. But Jesus comes along and basically says, I am that ladder. I'm that stairway to heaven. The angels of God will ascend and descend upon me, the Son of Man, just as they ascended upon that ladder. I am the ladder. I am the bridge to God. Later on, Jesus said, No man can come to the Father but by me. What he was saying is that I am the way to the Father. I'm the ladder. Man cannot get to God by himself. You must come through me, the stairway, the ladder. A religious system is an attempt by man to reach God. Man gets together, figures out rituals, ceremonies, and ways that they can approach God. Let's construct our ladder. God is displeased with man's attempt to reach Him because man cannot reach God by himself. The reverse is true. God takes the initiative and reaches man. In fact, notice the wording in the next few verses. It says, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid, and he said, How awesome is this place? He was a Californian. <laughs> this is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. The gate of heaven. Remember back when man built the Tower of Babel, several chapters back in the book of Genesis? Babel means the gate of God. 
they were building this huge tower in an attempt to reach God, human government, exalting man. God was displeased with it. Man can never reach God. God can reach man. There is none who seeks after God, no, not one. There is none righteous. But God is looking for men. They tried to reach God through Babel. They were actually exalting man's ability to do something. I will become religious. I will be organized. I will reach God. God said, oh, now nothing will be beyond their scope. And God confounded them at Babel. Jacob calls the place Bethel, the house or the dwelling place of God. Out in the middle of the desert, he came to that discovery. God is here. And I didn't know it. Here I was, out alone, away from home. I thought I was the only one out here. I figured, I'm God-forsaken. I'm in a God-forsaken place. Man, I, I, I deceived my parents. I stole my brother's blessing. I feel so far from God. But God appeared to me. God is in this place. And I knew it not. I know it now. But I didn't know it in the past. And he said, man, this is an awesome place. And he sets up an altar as we read. Jacob rose up early in the morning, verse 18, took the stone that he had put at his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of that city had been Luz previously. And then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way, that I am going to give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I can come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And the stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. The gate of heaven, God standing at the top of that ladder, that stairway, looking down, reaching out to man. God takes the initiative. I'd like to look at it this way. In the past, God spoke to man from outside the time and space continuum. God revealed himself to prophets, and the prophets spoke their message to mankind, and man either responded favorably or rejected it. Finally, God decided to crawl inside that box by sending Jesus Christ to become a man, as Bob was singing tonight. Jesus was God, but he became a man. He crawled inside of that box, became the means of communication. That's what the writer of Hebrews meant when he said, God at different times and in different ways, spoken times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his own Son, whom he made heir of all things. God finally spoke to man in a way that man could relate to. And I've often used the example of my son Nathan. How that when I get down at his eye level, he relates with me differently. If I walk in the house and go, Nathan, he'll respond to me, but a whole lot differently than if I get down on his knees and go, Nathan. He'll jump on me when I'm eyeball to eyeball with him. He'll beat me up. He does not feel intimidated by me. Though I am still his father, I relate to him differently at his level. God finally related to man at man's level by Jesus becoming one of us so that we can relate to God a lot easier now. Jacob said something that I think we all need to recognize. God is in this place, but I didn't know it. You know that God 
is in every place that you are. Are you a believer tonight? God's with you. Are you in a bad circumstance? God's with you. You might not know it, but there will come a time by the will of God that you will know it, and we hope it's soon. One of the loneliest places to be is when you think that you are forsaken by God. But to come to the realization, wow, God's here, changes everything. If you're in a hospital bed, suffering a disease, to realize God is in this place. I didn't know it, but now I do. We'll turn that place of suffering, place of barrenness, into an altar of worship. God is awesome. I sat across from a dear lady who was withering away in a hospital bed, at first wondering why God allowed this disease to happen. She's in heaven with Jesus right now. But toward the last stages of her death, she said to me as I'd walk in her room, Skip, it's as if I can hear the angels singing. I can feel, I can experience the presence of Jesus. He's here, he's in this room, he's in this place. And that hospital room became an altar platform where she offered up her praise. The last few breaths that she had in this life were filled with such glory. And I used to go into her hospital room and think, well, I didn't minister to her today, but boy, she sure blessed me. She sure had a great message for me today. And she would sit me down and she would exhort me, stay close to the Lord. Keep teaching the Bible. Continue praying to God. God is with you. I just sit there and go, all right. <laughs> I didn't have any words to say to her. She didn't need any sermon. She had it wired. God is in this place. I didn't know it, but boy, do I know it now. Jacob sets up an altar. Now, this is just the beginning. It would sound like, wow, God encountered Jacob, or Jacob encountered God. He's on the road. Yes, that's true. But remember, he still has flaws. And it takes God years to chisel away at this hammerhead and get him to become supple and moldable clay. Now, when you and I come to Christ, we still have an old nature. God's patient with us. God will reveal himself to us. God is committed to making us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And he'll do it. But Jacob, remember, has some some flaws because of his hardened heart that will take a while for God to chisel away at. By the way, would you please be patient with your fellow brother and sister? Remember that bumper sticker? Be patient with me. God isn't finished with me yet. That was Jacob's motto. He lived by that. I look at Jacob and I think, God, how could you put up with this character? And then I see my own life. Oh, okay, I see how. Yep. God isn't finished with me yet. It takes a lifetime, but God chisels away. And he said in verse 22, This stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. <laughs> and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. What's great is that he didn't set up any elaborate shrine. Just a pile of rocks. He said... This is it. This is God's house right here. Pile of rocks. If you try to go to Israel today, you will see shrines that man has set up. Churches in different parts of what they call the Holy Land. 
They call Israel the Holy Land. To me, it's not the Holy Land. It's the unholy land. Now, one day it will be holy when Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom and reigns from Mount Zion. But right now, it's just like any other place. God is in that place, but God is in this place as well. In the ancient times, people would confine the gods that they worshipped to special holy places, shrines where they would come and worship, their little meccas. But Jacob realized that God is wherever I am. God's was in this place, this barren place, with me all along, but I didn't know it. So he set up a shrine and go, this is God's house. Wherever you are, that's God's house. Wherever God's people come together, this is God's house. There's nothing special about this church. We don't come to church because this is where God lives. When I was a kid, my parents used to say, don't run in God's house. What they meant is the church that we attended. And I tell you, I used to think, this is God's house? Boy, he could, he could, he could do a lot better than this. <laughs> Solomon, when he built the temple, do you remember what he said as he dedicated the temple to God? He said, the heaven of heavens cannot contain God, much less this temple which I have built. Listen, there's no shrine that can captivate the presence of God. The first time I went on a tour to Israel, i got to tell you, I was really disappointed because I expected to experience some kind of vibration. You know, I sat in certain places. I heard all these stories of people who go to Israel, and it's like, wow. So I went there, and I said, okay, God, lay it on me. (laughs) And it didn't work. I was disappointed. And I went back to my little apartment in Santa Ana, and one night after that trip, I sat down with my guitar in a just a time of worship, I experienced the intimacy with God and God was showing me, don't look for me in any special shrine or place. Just as God is invisible and God is transcendent above us, there's nothing that can captivate God. There's no shrine that can hold Him. People throughout the centuries have been drawn into idolatry because they can't handle the transcendence of God. That's why they look at statues or idols, which is to remind them of God. Because they have to have something tangible, some physical reference. But anytime you make an image of God, a picture of God, an image of the divine, you lower Him. Because there is absolutely no picture, no statue, no image that can be an accurate representation of who God really is. God is always greater than that. He doesn't look like that. And any time you set up a statue, you are diminishing the glory of God. That's why he told the children of Israel, make no image in reference to your worship. Don't look at the image and start worshiping me based upon that image. God said, that will be idolatry. The heavens of heavens cannot contain God. So there's Jacob out there. God's in this place. I didn't know it. I figured God didn't hang out in places like this with creeps like me. But he's here. And it blew his mind, set up an altar. And notice... He said, this shall be God's house, and all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. This is before the law was given, the law of Moses, the law of the tithes, and yet he gives 10% of what God gave to him back to the Lord in dedication to God. What I like about this is it was before the law, which meant it was voluntary, it was from his heart. By the way, that's how God likes people to give. God doesn't like people to give out of constraint. Oh, here comes the offering. 
You know, I could have used this money for a stereo. Oh, keep your filthy lucre. Buy your stereo. God doesn't want it. God doesn't need it. Only do it when your heart is turned on to the Lord. And it's a free will offering. That's what God likes. We've often told people that when you give to the Lord, you should give with a joyous heart. And if any of you give and it's not with a joyous heart, we'll, we'll refund your money. I had one person come up to me one time and say, I want my money back. I thought it was it. I said, you're, you're, you're joking. Nope. I said, all right, we'll look in the tithe record and everything you've given, we'll give back to you. No problem. You don't have to contend with us. You gave it to the Lord, but hey, you want it back, we'll give it to you. Because the Lord loves us to give out of a joyous heart. Exodus 25 is a great chapter. Don't have to turn to it. But God says, Moses, take an offering from the people of Israel, but only those who have the heart to give. They have a willing heart. So he takes an offering. Ten chapters later, eleven chapters later, as the people continue to give, Moses has to tell them to stop giving because they gave too much. They had such a heart of thanksgiving that they overgave to the Lord's work. Jacob is giving just out of that overflowing heart of thanksgiving and joy unto the Lord. And notice the first verse of chapter 29. Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. Literally in Hebrew, what it says is that Jacob, instead of went on his journey, lifted up his heels, kicked his heels in the air. He's filled with joy. The presence of God has been his. He's encountered the Lord and he's walking away with great joy. His heart has lifted up his feet. And he looked and he saw a well in the field. And behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth. Now all the flocks would be gathered there. And they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. Jacob said to them, My brethren, where are you from? And they said, We're from Haran. And he said to them, Hey, do you know Laban by any chance, the son of Nahor? And they said, oh, yeah, we know him. And he said, is he well? And they said, yeah, he's well. Look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. I like to read about love stories in the Bible. Now, here's another dating story. We saw one with Isaac where the servant of Abraham goes out and finds him a bride. Here Jacob is out. He just encountered God. He's about to meet his match and a guy by the name of Laban, who's also a con artist, in fact, a greater con artist than Jacob. But he's out there to find a wife. So he goes to a well, which is sort of the downtown area of the ancient world. People would gather, eventually water their flocks. He starts taking the initiative. Everybody's gathering around. They said, hey, uh, you know a guy by the name of Laban? Oh, yeah, sure. Look at there's his daughter coming. Now, it obviously was love at first sight, as we read, as we go a little bit further down. Uh, Rachel is coming with the sheep, verse 7, and he said, Look, it's still high day. It is not time for the, or, uh, yeah, it is not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go feed them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and they've rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. You see what they're saying? Saying it's not profitable for us to roll this huge stone until everybody's gathered together. We water all the flocks at once. Until then, we're not going to do it. Now here's Jacob kind of telling them what to do. This is typical of his personality. Hey, water these sheep. Take water the cattle. 
Later on, you can finish the... No, we don't do things that way here. Uh, now, while he was speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth, watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel. First date. And the next part's a little bit strange. And he lifted up his voice and he wept. Now, if you were her, how would you feel? Now, I think that Jacob is trying to impress this gal. He sees her coming and he goes, Okay, guys, uh, let's water these animals here. No, we don't do things that way. We've got to wait till all the flocks are here. So what does he do? He moves the stone by himself. You know, I'm going to be Mr. Macho. I'm going to take the initiative here. Rolls the stone away, starts watering her flocks. Starts serving her. Something that was not typical in the culture of that day. And she probably just thought, oh, you know, I'm impressed with this character. Walks over to her, plants one on her, and then lifts up his voice and weeps. I hope it doesn't continue like that the rest of their relationship. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son. So she ran and told her father. And it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him, embraced him, and kissed him, and brought him to his house. And so he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are bone of my flesh, or my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. Now, what happened at Bethel, the house of God, out there in the wilderness when God appeared and showed him this vision and he was all stoked, was just the beginning. He's about to enter the hardest education of his life. It's called the School of Hard Knocks, the Academy of Laban. Laban was a conniver. He was a con artist. Jacob meets his match, and he's about to have his first course in college. It's called, Whatever You Sow, That You Shall Also Reap 101. In fact, you could write this right over the heading of this chapter. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. The Bible says your sin will find you out. You might get by with it for a while and think, all right. I ripped that person off. I stole his blessing. I made it this far. But it'll catch up with you. Whatever you reap, that you will also sow, says in the book of Galatians. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. You sow apple seeds, not orange trees are not going to grow. Apple trees are going to grow. When Pharaoh decided to kill all of the male Hebrew children, eventually he reaped what he sowed. His own firstborn son was killed. David went out and committed adultery with Bathsheba. Later on, his own daughter was raped and his son was slain. Even Paul the Apostle, consenting to Stephen's death. It is interesting that at Lystra he was dragged out of the city and stoned for dead. We reap what we sow. Our sins will find us out. And so Laban said to him, Surely you're my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him. For a month. And Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, 
what should your wages be now? <laughs> the guy moves in pretty quickly. Who said anything about working? But he kind of comes in and says, well, listen, you know, uh, you shouldn't work for nothing. What do you mean work? See, he was there for a whole month, and he was just kind of hanging out, not doing anything. He wasn't used to serving. The prophecy said the older will serve him, the younger. He was a man of the tents. He hung around the tents, and he was ministered too, but now he has to go out and serve. Laban moves in and tries to work a slick deal. And Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate. But Rachel was beautiful of form and of appearance. Let me give you a, f a few explanations of what that could mean. Some expositors believe that the word delicate means that she had blue eyes, which was considered a deficit in those days. In the Mideast, guys fall in love with those dark, rich, brown-eyed gals. And it could be that Leah had blue eyes, and they said, oh, you know, she's not that good-looking. She's got blue eyes. Now, today, blue eyes are seen, and, ooh, be beautiful blue eyes. It also could mean that the features that surrounded her cheekbones and her eyes weren't prominent. She just really wasn't a good-looking gal. Basically, he looked at Rachel and said, oh, she's good-looking. <sighs> Love at first sight. Leah, yeah, kind of the ugly duckling, really, of the two. That's how he looked at her. She was delicate eyes, but not the strong features that he was in love with. Now, Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. That's quite a commitment, isn't it? <laughs> Laban said, well, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. Listen to this. And they seemed but a few days to him because of the love that he had for her. It's one of the most romantic verses in the Bible. A far cry from the microsecond commitments that many couples experience today. Oh, I know it's God's will. How do you know? I just know. Seven years. In those days, when a guy and a gal would get married, usually the guy, the fellow, would have to provide what they called a dowry. The dowry was paid to the father of the bride, and basically a dowry was simply alimony in advance. That's what it amounted to. If he flaked out on the marriage, dumped her, divorced her, the father keeping the dowry, the alimony, would give it to the daughter to be provided for in case her husband was a flake. It's a good idea, actually. It really should be reinstituted today, I think. Because I see a lot of husbands that, after a period of years, leave their wives, and now their wives are single moms raising the kids, and they go out and have their fling and are irresponsible. I'm not saying everyone does that, but it really is a good institution. The idea of the dowry. He didn't have any money. He split, man. He was penniless. And so he's serving for seven years to sort of provide for the dowry. Paid to him for the wife that he wanted. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. <laughs> hey, man, seven years, great, but now it's over. I want my wife. For my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. It came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went to her. Now, you might think, oh, wait a minute, is Jacob so stupid? 
that he wouldn't have figured it out as she was brought to him in the wedding. Now keep something in mind. In those days, the brides were completely veiled. The groom did not see the bride. We have a kind of a custom like that in, in uh, our day. The groom doesn't see the bride the day of the wedding, and she walks down the aisle with a veil, but you can see her underneath it. I did three weddings this weekend, and they all had a veil. And at the time of the kiss, she takes her veil off, and they're pronounced husband and wife, and he plants the kiss on her, and they split. But it wasn't done that way in those days. It wasn't like, okay, kiss your bride and... I mean, otherwise, you know, the veil would be lifting. Hey, wait a minute. And imagine how a groom would feel. <laughs> if on the day of his wedding, it's somebody else. You know, whoa. No way. But the veil was completely over the woman. After the wedding was over, under the cover of darkness, they went into their honeymoon tent. Lo and behold, look what happened the next morning. Verse 25. It came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. Oh, now the trickster has been out-tricked. Instead of the secondborn, the firstborn is given. Now, don't you think, at this point, all of the trickery that he was guilty of with his dad and with his brother came to mind again? Now he starts to point the finger, you tricked me, and he probably swallowed his own words. Because he himself tricked and stole the blessing from the firstborn. Here, the firstborn is substituted for the secondborn. Kind of got a dose of his own medicine, didn't he? And he said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I have served you? Why then have you deceived me? Hey, wait a minute. Why have you deceived me? You are Mr. Deceiver. You ripped off your brother's blessings. You lied to your dad. You and your mom had this little collusion going together. You've now had a taste of your own medicine. The chickens have now come home to roost. And Laban said, Oh, it must not be done so in our country to give the youngest before the firstborn. He said, in other words, you know, there's this fine print clause in our wedding contract. I didn't tell you about it before, but... The way it goes is that you can't marry the secondborn. The firstborn has to go first. I didn't tell you about that, but you know, I just kind of figured you knew. Ooh. Now listen, he says, fulfill her week. Come on, you know, fulfill her week. We will give you this one also for the service with which you will serve me still another seven years. The amazing verse is the next one. Then Jacob did so. Fulfilled her week. So he gave him his daughter Rachel also as his wife. Fulfill the marriage week, in other words. Go through the celebration. Humor the gal. You've married her. It's the custom. Go through with it. A week later, he gets his second wife, but has to serve after that another seven years, a total of 14 years for Rachel. Now, Jacob was a good sport about the whole thing. You got to grant that to him. He said, "All right, I'll I'll go through with it." The one I feel sorry for is Leah. She was unloved by her husband and used by her own father. She has a horrible marriage situation. She feels unaccepted by her. But 
God is still with her. And God will plead her cause. Let's read on. Laban gave his maid, verse 29, Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. Then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban still another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name, look, a son. That's what Reuben means. For she said, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction. That was his name, Reuben. Look, a son. So what's your name? My name is, look, a son. For God looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Oh, what a sad thing. See, she's thinking, if I have children, my husband will love me. You know, I see a lot of marriages today like that. The marriage starts to get a little rocky. They lose things in common. They lose the spark of love. And so they start thinking, well, maybe if we have kids, that's the answer. No, it's not. It's not the answer. In fact, oftentimes it will get worse, and the husband will be driven away from the wife, or vice versa, and then the kids have to live with the byproduct of a broken marriage and a strained relationship. I would highly recommend you do not have children until that relationship with your husband and wife is solidly intact. That commitment is there till death do you part. Here she is, insecure, because she is unsure of her husband's love. It's a horrible, miserable way to live. But God grants her children. I love it. God pleads her case. Then she conceived again, bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Hearing. She moans, Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore he called his name Attached or Joined, Levi. And she conceived again, bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah, and then she stopped bearing. For the next several years, and we'll close our study here tonight, God is going to deal with the manipulative behavior of Jacob by using another manipulator, sort of as a mirror. Isn't it interesting, folks, how we can see our sins revealed in other people? Laban, you creep, why have you deceived me? And as he's pointing at Laban, three fingers are pointing back at him. The creep has been outcreeped. The surplanter has been tripped by somebody else. I would like to read a verse of scripture to you that I think is sort of a summary of God dealing with his character. Let me just read it to you out of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32. He said, the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his inheritance. He found him in a desert land. Out in Bethel, God appeared to him. And in the wastelands, howling in the wilderness. He encircled him, instructed him, and kept him as the apple of his eye. But listen to this. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovering over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings, so the Lord alone led him. And there was no foreign God with him. Beautiful picture of what God is doing to Jacob. Protecting him, being with him, but stirring up the nest. You know what a mother eagle does? Builds her nest high up in the cliffs. So that that 
nest is protected. No one can get to it. She is a vicious creature. When that nest is attacked, that mother eagle will go for blood. When that little eaglet arrives at a certain age and it's time for flying lessons, the mother eagle will start flapping its wings and getting that little thing roused up. Eventually, she'll use her claws to boot that little eaglet out of the nest. What that little eaglet does is plummet like a stone. And that little eaglet goes, I'm dead meat. I'm going to be a road pizza here at the bottom of the canyon. And just before the fatal splat, that mother eaglet comes down and bears it up on eagle's wings, protecting that little eaglet. That little eaglet's going, Flying lesson number one. Next day, same thing. She flaps her wings, kicks a little one out of the nest. Pretty soon, that little eaglet's going to start flapping its wings and learn how to fly because mother, mother eagle boots it out of the nest. God does that with us. Sometimes we don't understand God's dealing. We think, oh, this is a horrible place. This is a God-forsaken place. It's all over. God comes and bears us up. And we think, this is an awesome place. God is here. I didn't know it. And we start learning lessons of faith. And God uses those experiences to transform our old character into the character of Jesus Christ. God loves us. Individually, God is concerned about where we're at tonight. You might have come into this place and say, I am so distressed and I feel so unloved, so unimportant. God doesn't care. He does. You might be in a dry, barren place of suffering. And maybe you haven't realized what Jacob realized. By the grace of God, I hope you do. God is with you tonight. You might not know it, but God loves you with all of his heart. And God is committed to saving you, washing you from your sins, and changing you into the image of Jesus Christ. Tonight you may be wondering about somebody you love. You think, man, I've prayed for that character for so long. I care so much. But they strayed away from God. Listen, God loves that person more than you love that person. Jesus died on the cross for that person and is more concerned than even you are. Take heart. God is in this place. Know it. Walk away from that place of barrenness, a place of pain, and may that place become an altar. May you call whatever affliction you have tonight the house of God. God's here. Heavenly Father, you don't live in shrines or temples or church buildings. You live in hearts of people. I am convinced, Lord, that you desire to reveal yourself in absolutely every circumstance that we walk through. Every barren place that we think, Lord, this is God forsaken, this is desolation. You're there. Lord, it's amazing to see how committed you are to the individual. To take that person and change that person. To be more like your son, Jesus. Lord, Jacob was in a real lonely place and you revealed that you really love him. And that you wanted to forgive him. You wanted to change him. Lord, I pray that we would realize that tonight. 
that we would not hold on to our lives, but release them to you. That tonight might be a night of decision. Where from this Sunday night forward, we would say, Jesus, take over my life. You know best. You are much more concerned about me, really, than I am about me. And you're the only one able to really handle it. Lord, I pray that if there's some of us tonight who've been running away from God, that we turn around tonight and run straight to your arms and receive your love and forgiveness. Father, we pray for those who have come tonight who do not yet know personally the Savior. Lord, that tonight would be a night of decision for them. 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 Decision.